Welcome to Vice and Easy, your podcast for all things Miami Vice, with your host, Marina. Hello, and welcome back to Vice and Easy. Thank you again for your patience. This episode is delayed. I'm not going to get into all the technical difficulties. We're just going to move on and get down to this episode. Season 3, Episode 11, entitled Forgive Us Our Deaths. IMDb synopsis is as follows. New evidence leads Crockett to fight against the execution of Frank Hackman, put on death row for murdering Crockett's old partner. Who is Crockett's old partner? No, we're not talking about Jimmy Smith's. We're going a little bit deeper. We are introduced to the cold open with a card that says Miami 1980. We see Crockett and a gentleman with an excellent hockey mullet and big chunky glasses, unbuttoned shirt, hairy chest... (laughs) And it's funny, when I was actually looking up the actors of this episode, his name is Luke Galpin, I believe, and he was in the original Flipper, and you see these pictures of him as a child star, and then you're like, oh, wow, he just embraced the 80s and is, I want to say, maybe his 30s, but, oh, what a look. Not even just the outfit. Look at the car. Look at the Porsche Targa that Crockett is rolling around in. It's a beautiful dark silver color, and Targa means that you can take the top off. Not fully a convertible. It's just like that middle hard part of the Porsche you can take off. It was very, very, very much in style and super cool. So I kind of like seeing this. And then Crockett has a hat on. And I was like, I've never seen Crockett wear a baseball hat in my entire three-season journey. But I'm like, oh, yeah, duh. The haircut's obviously going to give it away. I guess they could slick it back. But uh, no. So he's dropping off his partner. And they're talking about a case that they have coming up. They seem pretty certain that the case is going to go in their favor in this next clip. Hackman, get itchy feet. I'll pick you up at 5.30, and we'll take this turkey while he's still in bed. Hey, Sonny. Yeah? The good guys won for once. <laughs> yeah, for once. <laughs> Now, we're going to explore who Hackman, the gentleman that Crockett was saying he was worried about getting itchy feet, is later on in this episode. You will see where this is all leading as Frankel walks into his house. His kids, one of his his daughter rushes up to him. His son is watching cartoons, comes, hugs them. When his wife, played by Donna Rice, who we'll get into in Vice Tea, walks by to say get ready for dinner, wash up. And as they're setting the dinner table, Frankel and his wife are talking about having dinner soon with Sonny and Caroline, which I think is very cute. But at this time, the episode is shot looking through the window outside. So it looks as if we're outside the window looking in because in reality, there's a masked man outside. We do get a flash of the mask that this gentleman is wearing with the very small slit eyes. We can't even see anything. It's not like a balaclava or a ski mask. It is it's a mask made for crime. Let's just put it that way. As he cocks his gun, goes to the door, and as Frankel asks his wife if she's expecting anybody because he's going to go answer the door, he makes his way to the door, opens the door, is shot immediately, and his body flies back as he knocks down a bunch of his children's toys and we're able to get that freeze frame cut of him with the raggedy end all. And unfortunately, that is how the cold open ends. In present-day Miami, 1986, Crockett now has a TV. 
that what took him nine episodes I guess to be fair you know that's two and a half months I guess they also really need it for this plot point so the TV is on in Crockett's boat in the St. Vitus dance while a beautiful blonde woman named Donna is also there and I think maybe they just put the TV in last minute to kind of contradict the character's trajectory, but it's very necessary for this scene because we are watching an on-air debate about the death penalty. We have Michael Claiborne from ACLU. We have Thomas Waldman, who's going to come into a pivotal role this episode as the Miami state attorney running for re-election. And we also have, naturally, the ACLU lawyer is against not only the death penalty, but showing executions on TV, whereas Waldman and the chief of police are arguing otherwise in this next clip. Oh, yes. Candidates, any comments? Well, that isn't enough. You want real deterrent value, you get public executions broadcast live so as all the criminal scum can watch. Are these guys serious? Of course they're serious. Trying to get elected. Mr. Claiborne, your thoughts? You know, it's one thing to go down to the courthouse at Tombstone and watch a public hanging as a matter of personal choice, but to broadcast the death of a human being into every home in this state where small children might be watching is an obscenity. Okay, so what's the impetus behind this whole debate being televised and being used as part of a re-election strategy? Well, the news reporter is cutting to Frank Hackman. Does that name sound familiar? Convicted murderer who is on death row and who has something he wants to say to the camera. Even though I didn't commit the crime I've been convicted of, I want my death to count for something. Broadcasting my execution might help people see that any killing, even in the name of justice, is wrong. Oh, man. What's wrong? Nothing that 20,000 volts wouldn't cure. Come on. Now, Hackman is the one who is in jail for the murder of Crockett's ex-partner. So I don't know if Crockett really wanted to explain that to his possible one-night stand or flavor of the week. But there's a reason why Sonny is so charged during this scene watching this man say what he's saying now maybe the same morning maybe this is just like because i guess they're not eating anything just having orange juice crockett and tubs meet at a very cute little hole in the doll winer oh my god hole in the wall diner that is also offering an oyster cocktail don't know if they have like more of like a shrimp cocktail thing not sure i haven't had seafood in like 15 years so very curious when oyster cocktail is <laughs> Now, as they're sitting down, they're reading the paper. Crockett's kind of giving him an update why he's in a bad mood. Castillo sits down and tells him that, well, Hackman thing just got a lot more complicated because there's a priest who wants to talk to Crockett specifically about Frank Hackman. So Crockett and Castillo go visit this priest, and the priest tells him that one of his parishioners has come forward and has told him that he believes that Frank Hackman is innocent and that Frank Hackman actually has an alibi. The priest, however, won't reveal his source. 
Crockett thinks it sounds a bit fishy. You know, why would he want to go to the cop? And the excuse kind of thrown back at Crockett is that he worries about his family and that if he were to go to the police, his whole family would be dead. My note was you're getting him out, not in, but I guess therefore in getting him out, you're going to be putting someone back in because someone did murder Frankel. So I strike my note from the record. The priest also says that his source specifically asked to speak with Crockett. And Crockett is the one that put Frank Hackman on death row for killing his partner. And Crockett explains that history to Tubbs as they drive over to go see Waldman. Waldman, like I mentioned, is the state attorney who is running for election. Now, you've got to see this high-tech ad on the TV. It is so 80s. It's like maybe like... 16-bit, not 8-bit. It's very funny. Now, Crockett and Tubbs go in to chat with Waldman about Hackman and what's going on and letting Waldman know that they have a source that could exonerate Frank Hackman in this next scene. He was convicted for a specific murder. And he's guilty. We had enough evidence to bury that guy alive. All of it was circumstantial. Circumstantial? We had shoe prints outside the apartment, fiber matches, a box of those double-odd magnums in his car. Tom. Clothes to match a neighbor's description. And need I remind you that his pal Al Biero testified as the hackman's intent? Look, I was the cop that arrested him, but it was four hours later and more than three blocks away. This thing was dumped on me, but I gotta do it right. Are you telling me that I have to convince you that Hackman deserves to die? I'm just trying to maintain some objectivity here and do the right thing. I would think that you would want to do the same. <laughs> and now Waldman responds right back at Crockett that his platform is pro-capital punishment and he's not willing to just toss away the biggest conviction of his career for one anonymous statement. He says maybe he'll even consider it if they can find a cooperating witness or statement or evidence. Naturally, because I understand that because it's very easy for somebody to just say, oh, no, this person is guilty. This person is innocent. And I understand why in order to con- to overturn something you would want to have more than one person, especially if it's just an eyewitness account. There's no receipts. There's no footage, surveillance. Now, speaking of surveillance, at back at the precinct, at OCB, they're going over all the surveillance that they're going to be doing at the church. And they got to keep it, you know, pretty low key. So we're going to see this later on the episode. And you're going to die when you see what Gina is into. But after this briefing, where Zito says one word, just putting that out there, a spoiler alert, Zito says one word. Crockett gets news from Castillo that somebody wants to see him. Surprise, surprise, let's guess who this person is. As we hear the haunting first notes of We Do What We're Told by Peter Gabriel, which is also just like everybody who has a job, we do what we're told. Oh, 
Crockett goes to see Waldman, who's looking very sad and forlorn, holding a cross. Crockett is not buying it in this next clip. Why'd you ask me to come here? A man's right. Face his accusers. Not many people have the luxury of knowing the exact hour of their death. I'm losing interest. You didn't put me here. I want you to know that. There'll come a time when you'll ask for forgiveness to make your peace with God. And I want you to remember that I don't hold you accountable. Now that's dang nice of you, Frank. Hackman then just keeps going on that he didn't kill Frankel, but he has killed other people and that's who he's dying for. Then he tries to get the waterworks going by placing his palm up against the bulletproof glass and Crockett is not having it, as you can see in the gallery. Now, let's have a little bit fun. We see Gina dressed up as a nun just sitting outside and she's just reading the license plates via her mic, her wire, to Zwitek, who's writing them down, pulling up information on them. Then we see Trudy going around with not a Polaroid, but a Spectra. But it's pretty much looks the exact same as a Polaroid. But I think all Polaroid cameras have the actual brand on the camera. So I guess this is like the knockoff version. Then she hands them over to a tall, redheaded gentleman who is not Zito, who then hands them to Zwitek. Zwitek flips the Polaroids over, scans them, and sends them to Washington, D.C. They get the records of about three parishioners who could fit the profile. They finally find the guy that probably looks like the most likely because he has a lot of experience with Hackman. Experience in the form of charges. (laughs) If you actually look at the gallery and see the printout of his sheet, it says multiple, oh sorry, it says history colon numerous felonies. Money laundering, extortion, petty larceny, grand theft auto, breaking and entering, and those are the only ones I was able to capture in the one screenshot because I didn't want to make multiple screenshots. But yeah, he has a very long, 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 long record. (laughs) His name is Albiero, Gus Albiero, and Crockett and Tubbs are going to go make a visit to him and see if they can get a little bit more information from him. I also love that they take the Testarossa to this auto body shop. You testified that he did the murder. I testified to his intent. Wait a minute, Gus. You were the nail in the coffin. We didn't have enough evidence to send him up without your testimony. You know that. Gus then claims that Hackman was actually with him in Daytona the time of the murder. You perjured yourself? Why? He was making it with my wife. I wanted to kill him myself. So who really killed Franco? I got a new wife, family. I'd be dead in a couple hours if I told you that. Oof, and then unfortunately Gus does explain that kind of the impetus, the reason for his change of heart or his supposed honesty is because that he is suffering from pancreatic cancer and he has been told he has about two months to live. 
and he does have a new wife and family, and he doesn't want to say who the real killer of Frankel is without putting them at risk. They take this information back to Waldman. Now, not to jump from emotion to emotion, but Waldman's office gets even better with the glass blocks behind him, the glass kind of like figurine on the table, and then as Croc and Tubbs are walking out, the glass blocks again in the hallway, but backlit pink. Again, they ask Waldman, what's it going to take to get Hackman out? Again, Waldman says two cooperating witnesses is what he wants. I love how my note is very stylish receptionist. (laughs) This is back at Gus's place. So that very stylish receptionist, she has these big gold earrings and pink skirt, black top, black kind of like a scarf. That is his new wife. They ask Gus for someone to corroborate his story. Gus mentions Barclay, Barclay, Tommy Barclay, that they used to all work with, but he hasn't heard from him in like six years, 10 years. It's been a while. And then Crockett promises that they'll make it quiet and they'll tell that the police coerced him just to try to alleviate the fears about his family. Now, Crockett takes that information back to OCB, asks Trudy to look for Barkley. Fortunately, Trudy reports back that Barkley was killed in a prison riot years ago, hence why Gus hasn't heard from him. Crockett's frustrated, but Trudy, again, she's going through the jacket. She has other papers that she's looking for to try to find another cooperating witness to help them out. Now we're going to go back as an audience to the mechanic shop. Gus's new wife isn't happy with the postcard he just received in the mail. It's his ex-wife. Naturally, she's very pissed off. Why is she sending you this picture? I have no idea. Well, you promised. You swore when we got married you would be out. No more contact. Carmen, please believe me. I'll always take care of you and the children. You're all I care about. That's not good enough. Not this time. No, God. Oh, and she tells him that she's going to her mom, taking the kids, and that he has one day, he has until tomorrow to decide whether or not he's really going to cut his ex-wife out of his life. And again, this seems like the postcard was not sent with his desire. I don't think he asked for a postcard. I think it was just sent to him as kind of like a mind F. Not sure. So as she leaves... We see a woman in another car who's watching this whole situation play out walk towards him as he's working on another car right after his new wife leaves. We see her walking up to him with holes in the driveway filled with water. It's really slick. It's really dirty. Her feet are definitely going to get pretty nasty in those high heels because there's no toe covering. She goes over to the car he's working on. There's a great picture of him kind of looking back as he's still underneath the car working and he sees the feet, he sees the legs, gets up, doesn't really say much, crouches, puts his hand in prayer position, does the um, the cross across his chest. I don't know what it's fully called, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I don't even know which way to do it. I know someone made fun of me. I did it the wrong way. And I was like, okay, I'm not... <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I knew some of these used to do it under bridges or by um, cemeteries. And I was like, oh, maybe I should do that. And then I did it the wrong way and somebody made fun of me. 
But he does that. He clasps his hands in a prayer position, closes his eyes, and we see three bullets out of this gun with a silencer on. Walk away the next morning at the crime scene. One of the Metro cops asks Crockett and Tubbs when they get on the scene if they've already had their breakfast. They say no. He pulls open the body bag. We could see it's a dummy. But basically he's saying of like how messy and disgusting it is because he's been shot in the face three times. And that he is able to determine from the blood spatter. Shout out to Dexter. Speaking of Miami blood spatter analysis that he was on his knees at the time. So they're a little bit perplexed as to what's going on. However, this doesn't look good with everything that's going on, what they need. This means that someone knew Gus was talking. Is it the real murderer of Frankel? Who knows? As they're sorting through evidence on the desk, they find the ripped up postcard. The cop also told Crockett and Tubbs that the neighbors heard that him and his wife have a blowout fight last night. The wife, the new wife, is sitting in the office with a very cute dark blue leopard print top. Crockett goes to talk to her, asks him to identify the woman in the picture, and she replies as saltily as anyone would in this next picture. She was a bad person. Oh no, I cut the wrong part. Dragging him down in her filth. Gus had left all that behind him. But she wouldn't let go. Abiero was gonna see her? Not and stayed with me. I'm so sorry. I cut the wrong part. I wanted the part where she had the postcard and just goes, La Bruja, the witch. Oh, just so clever. So unfortunately, I don't have that part, but I digress. He wasn't going to be seeing the new wife. So I don't know where this postcard is coming from. Definitely not something that he requested or that he wanted. As you can tell, he seems pretty committed to his current wife and their children together. So... Not sure what's going on, but this is the same wife that cheated on him with Hackman. So now we're back at OCB, where Zwitek has the results of the forensic analysis of Gus's death. They can't find any third-party handprints, but he did have, or... I'm trying to say this as politely and as delicately as I can if you're driving, not to gross you out. Three 380 caliber slugs, which means serious business. He would rate it like a 9.9 on the lethal scale, but a 6 on the neatness scale. That's really icky, and that's probably also why the Metro Cop asked Crockett and Tubbs if they had already had breakfast. So at OCB, they're still talking. They still need cooperation on Gus's statement. They have 20 hours to get it before Hackman is going to the electric chair. We know this because throughout the episode, we are splicing in images of Hackman at jail with the electric chair. So we all know what's going to happen. As they're kind of going over the postcard, Castillo asks if there's a return address, but there isn't one naturally in a postcard. But there is... A stamp. Stewart, Florida. Zwitek used to work in Stewart. So Crockett asked him if he knows any good seafood joints up there and passes in the picture of his ex-wife by Venus Clamtrap. 
So I check instantly IDs it. It's, it's by the stadium. And this is where I did a little bit of research. I was like, stadium in Stewart, Florida. I was thinking maybe it's like a minor league baseball team. So it turns out you'll see later on the episode insignia for Stewart Tigers. That is still the high school team or the high school mascot for Martin County, where Stewart is located. So I did think that was kind of cool, but obviously the stadium they go see in this episode is the old Miami Stadium, and I am going to shout out the Miami Stadium Instagram page because they have a lot of gems from Miami at this time, and it's really cool to see kind of the visual history of old Miami and what it became to now. I will say that on my research, I did find a minor league baseball team called the Jupiter Hammerheads that look very cute. I do love minor league baseball mascots because they really do have a lot of fun with it. And yes, there's a lot of fun to be had watching MLB games, but I think there is something like so fun and kitschy about a minor league game. So Crockett and Tubbs go back to visit Waldman. Once again, they keep pressing him, pressing him, pressing him, asking for more time. Waldman shuts them down with this statistic thusly. A very interesting confession. You've got no physical evidence and no one to back him up. So, Albiero gets hit. Miami is the murder capital of the world. One more reason for the death penalty oh, as a deterrent. come on. Would you spare me the campaign rhetoric? You want to turtle this issue until after the election. And what do you want? Let loose a cold-blooded killer? That guy is wrong. Everybody knows that. The system worked. Why can't you just let it go? Because I'm the cop that put him there. And I'm the lawyer. My conscience is clear. No, no, you're a politician. A conscience is optional. I also think it's funny that there is that distinction made between politician and lawyer when it comes to conscience because... Most defense lawyers are not known for, you know, their upstanding morals and conscience. <laughs> so I do find it funny that's not too far off from a politician, depending on who you're defending. Now we are going to make a little road trip. We're going to, quote unquote, Stewart, Florida. We're actually going to the old Miami Stadium to go eyeball and see what's going on at the Venus Clam Trap. <laughs> I can't say this seriously. So they want to be very cool and undercover. So they're going to park their Testarossa in the parking lot of a stadium, not in a proper parking spot. They just kind of park at a diagonal. So we hear the voice of a man and a woman inside the truck. She says she doesn't like the look of that car. He tells her to call Magruder. I thought it was saying Magruber. I was like, oh, my God, what a full circle moment. Unfortunately, no, it's Magruder. She makes a call. As they're getting ready, they're packing up the night, they're taking in their clam sign. <laughs> I can't with this. I can't with the clam trap truck. <laughs> oh, as they're closing up for the night, as Crockett and Tubbs exit the car, about to talk to them. I will also note in the gallery, there was a picture of a shirtless man just leaning on his Porsche also right by the clam trap. So it's quite an interesting parking lot dynamic. Usually these things are much more regulated, but I guess this is television. As they get out of the Testarossa, about to go confront Gus's ex-wife, La Bruja, we see tons of unmarked cars pull up, sirens a-blazing, guns are drawn, and they tell Crockett and Tubbs to put their hands on the car. Crockett tells them that they're cops, that ID's in the front pocket. But at this time, 
the man and the woman, the man being Thomas Barkley, the guy who supposedly died in a prison riot, are escorted to another car and driven off. By the time the FBI agents, the suits, realize that Crockett and Tubbs are in fact cops. Now, back at the precinct, Crockett and Tubbs find out that Barkley is actually in witness protection, that he has been working with the FBI to help take down his former conspirators in Chicago and the big crime scene and other big criminal lords in witness protection. That's why the FBI is watching them like a hawk. And that's why that one phone call they made was able to buy them time from having to confront Crockett and Tubbs. So Castillo can pull some strings to get Barkley's address, which again, I don't know if you could do that in reality. Who knows? Now let's move to a different note before we get to their palatial witness protection house. We're at prison where we see Hackman get the Last Supper while Meatloaf plays in the background. Ready for your supper? Anything I can do for you. And it's during this scene that he offers up his gold watch to the security guard, the warden. He declines. Frank pushes it again, says that, you know, you've made a real difference here. And then the security guard just basically has to tell him straight up, like, I can't take it. I could lose my job. And you can see that Hackman looks a little defeated. But I will notice that his Last Supper looks pretty decadent. you got a nice dinner roll. I see some ham here. So I always wondered, what are the limitations to a Last Supper? I... I guess they can get you anything you want. Like, what if you want fresh lobster? Or what if you want something that they can't source? Always wonder. I'm sure there's, like, stipulations. Uh, not something I'm sure I have the stomach to research right now. Now, let's change courses. We are back on the Scarab with Crockett and Tubbs. They pull up to this palatial, pastel wonderland of a house. And it is really funny. We have a scene of, like, Crockett kind of, like, loading up his gun. And Tubbs is like, wait, I thought we were just going to talk to him. He's like, yeah. <laughs> just preparing for anything, I guess. And I must say that this guy is definitely snitching big time because of how he's set up. Because, again, I'm not really sure of how opulent witness protection is, but it seems like this guy is definitely playing his cards right. He is not working at a Cinnabon in Omaha like Saul Goodman, I'll tell you that. (laughs) So they go walk through the backyard, try to go into the house. Again, there are security cameras everywhere. One of them catches Crockett and Tubbs on the property. So they're ready. It's a whole lot of gunslinging and gun cocking going on in this next scene. I figured it. Anything goes wrong. Felicia's the only one walking out of this party. Who are they? Cops or amateurs? No self-respecting thief would be this stupid. Let me see some ID. Vice. Miami. And as Crockett and Tubbs show their badges, he lets them know about blanket immunity. And this is also when we have also seen... Frank getting his head shaved in the electric chair. And I'd definitely go to the gallery because, again, this was definitely meant for 1986 eyes, not 2023 eyes. 
Frank has straight hair, right? Like, we saw a little bit of, like, a contrast in the first scene where he's talking to Crockett through the plexiglass, and his hair's all slicked back, and then it kind of dries out. Now, his hair is straight, but when they're shaving it, it's all these, like, thick, curly tendrils on the floor that they sweep up. Obviously, and you can tell later he's wearing a wig cap because it looks really bad in just, like, one scene. But again, this is 1986. This was not meant to be seen with, like, Blu-ray pause eyes. But I do think it's quite funny, just that, like, they couldn't find, like, a straight wig to ruin. But very funny. Now let's get back to witness protection. After... Barclay keeps going on and on about his blanket immunity. We see Felicia grab the paper. This is the same Felicia, Abe's ex-wife, and also the ex-paramour of Hackman, now living with another guy. So, uh, hey. (laughs) She pulls out that piece of paper. Crockett invites him to go for a walk, probably as a way just to get, like, a little bit more information out of him. As Barclay kind of goes on and on about that cops now can't do anything, can't get anybody to talk... Crockett beats the crap out of him, throws him in a pool, and convinces him to talk the old-fashioned way. Hackman was with you in Daytona? Yeah. Me and El Viero. Why didn't you show up for the trial? Felicia. Nobody's that good, pal. She is. <laughs> right? That's exactly what I was saying. I kind of wanted to say, like, use the by Felicia clip, but I'm like, no, in this case, we're saying, hey, Felicia, <laughs> what are your secrets? <laughs> oh, so again, he's naming another guy who's responsible for the murder, but that everybody knew that Frank was a cop and that everybody wanted him dead, but that Frank Hackman was not the one who actually killed him. So with this, Crockett and Tubbs are taking the quick way. Again, this was before cell phones, so they had to get a message to Waldman and actually the governor. Because at this time, Frank Hackman, again, he's already been shaved. He's already been fed his last supper. His clock is ticking. He has about an hour to go before he is sent to the electric chair. So Crockett and Tubbs speed over to this beautiful waterfront dinner party. At first I thought it was a funeral because everyone was in black and I just realized it was a fancy party. This is where Waldman and the governor are enjoying themselves. Crock and Tubbs walk right up and they tell Waldman that they need to speak to the governor now, that they finally have the cooperating witness that Waldman has been asking for. Governor, if I could recommend that this be handled through the appropriate channels. Tom, this man has a little over an hour left. Let's not worry about procedure. Give me a phone. Now, I'm not sure of the timeline, but we do know that the governor made the call. I want to say maybe the next morning, maybe a couple hours later, because Crockett is in a completely different outfit. We saw him soaked in the pool, kind of like that purplish, dark gray outfit. Now we see him with the pink undershirt and a gray blazer. Pink and pink with the pink glass blocks behind him is definitely a great look. Waldman's not too happy. He has the copy of the Miami standard in his hand big turnout expected in state election but then he also laments that he's down 10 points in the polls and that he never really cared for hackman anyway i'm not going to apologize for doing my job tom but for doing what i thought was right do you think i care about your motivation you cut the legs out of my career man 
Since when is that more important than a man's life? Hackman is a slug. The world would be that much lighter without him. That's not a call you get to make, Tom. Oh, that is tricky to kind of take this all in. I don't really sympathize with Waldman because... Crockett did what he had to do to prove what he thought was this man's innocence. And he was able to get the witnesses. And he did note that he was put away under less than secure evidence. However, (laughs) Waldman's just like complete dismissal and of who Hackman is as a person. It's true, like, that isn't a call you get to make. Just because you don't like somebody doesn't mean that you can kill them to better your campaign choices. But now we are going to the prisons. The big day Hackman is getting out. There is a sign behind Crockett and Tubbs that I circle that says, Bad Dog. <laughs> Which I love. What a good sign. It's like, no, not beware of dog, just bad dog. Is he going to pee on you? Is he going to bite you? Like, is he dangerous bad or is he just annoying bad? Because I know a lot of little chihuahuas that people love to bring into restaurants that are bad. (laughs) Now we get a great shot. Crockett is once again in a new outfit, like kind of like a Kelly green shirt with a dark gray blazer and uh, tubs, of course, looking great in his gray suit. As Hackman actually comes out very Miami criminal boss. I mean that he's wearing a Panama hat. He has a lavender under, he has a lavender shirt under his ivory. I'd say like maybe like eggshell suit. This scene is so hard to take in. Crockett is there and Crockett is also telling Tubbs that this isn't something that he usually gets to do. He doesn't usually get to greet people he's put away as they get out of prison. Let me just play this for you. Thanks, Crockett. Just doing my job. Like I knew you would. That honk is Felicia and Barkley pulling up in a car. Keep that in mind as we keep going. Gus was dying. He wanted his family to be cared for. I bought his confession. Yeah. Oh my god, if your heart does not sink during this scene. <sighs> I won't be needing this anymore. Maybe you can use it. That's the cross that Frankel hands to Crockett. It's just a whole mix of emotions in that scene, just knowing how well. Hackman played the general public and how he was able to guilt and coerce Sonny into helping him get freed, thinking that he was innocent. Oh, my God. And you can also tell, like, listen to this tonal shift as we cut to the freeze frame to finish up the episode. Right? You can hear that, that shift as we see Crockett just like seething in quiet anger. Oh, well, let's shake things up a bit. Let's break down the episode. Let's start with some looks. 
Honestly, I'm just going to say the ladies really brought it this episode because my choices for best dress, we have Trudy in the polka dot dress. We have Gina as the nun. And then we also have Gus's new wife in the black pink with the gold earrings. I think they all brought it this episode. And I found the honestly, the best dress man in this episode is Frank Hackman. And I don't want to put like the ultimate villain who killed Crockett's partner as best dress. So maybe I'll give him wild card. Okay, so let's give Frank Hackman wild card. We got all the ladies for best dressed. Then for Crockett, I really liked him in the light gray blazer with the pink undershirt with the matching glass blocks behind him in Waldman's office. Waldman's office is also my pick for best interior decor. Surprise, surprise, the snitch house that could, the witness protection house that Barclay and Felicia are in. Definitely taking the cake as the best exterior decor. But there's also some great interior shots where I was able to get a shot of her when she's pulling out the blanket immunity and you see all these pink fixtures in the bathroom. Ah, chef's kiss on that house. And that, he's definitely snitching on some big guys. And not only is he snitching, he's duping to get his ex-partner in crime, literally, out while living with the guy's ex-girlfriend. Yeah, I, I, Felicia's got a hold on these men. I'll put it that way. <laughs> but she's not one of our best dressed. No, 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 not this episode. <laughs> now for music, we got, got some big songs in there. So mainly kind of, there was a song that was playing at the mechanic, but it's, I'm not going to include it with like the big top 40 songs, like the bigger thematic songs of the episode. We have Standing Outside by Rest in Peace Meatloaf. We also have We're Do What We're Told by Peter Gabriel. We have two different haunting, kind of slow, instrumentally powerful songs telling us how to feel this episode, which I really appreciate. And it's very tough to kind of choose through. Pardon me, because I love cheese. I want to go with Meatloaf, but I think... Or do what we're told by Peter Gabriel playing as Sonny is realizing he got duped and that no good deed goes unpunished. That Crockett put so much on the line to free what he thought was an innocent man. And it turns out he just let his partner's murderer off the hook to go live his best life. And the, fr- the fact that Frank Hackman played that so intrinsically, knowing that he was really down to the wire, like his head was shaved, he's already fed his last supper, and he knew that Crockett's sense of good would take over. I just can't. It's diabolical. It's diabolical. Oh, man. Now, I have a little bit of vice tea, but it's not about any of the characters you think it's about. So the Frankles between them maybe got two minutes of screen time in that cold open. And I mentioned the name Donna Rice. So when this aired, originally in 1986, she was then just working as a model. She didn't really have a lot of acting credits to her name. She's also working at as a pharmaceutical representative in the Miami area. So this kind of helps the story go. But again, beautiful girl model. She apparently... At Don Henley's house in Aspen. Again, I linked to this article because, again, you know who else spent their time in Aspen? Don Johnson. So apparently they can't really source this whether or not she was dating Don Henley at the time or she was just a guest of somebody. But Don Henley goes through that in this article. 
that, you know, it was kind of like a small New Year's Day party where he basically fed all his hungover friends and that his friends also brought presidential hopeful one of the Democratic Party nominees, not the official one, but like, you know, kind of when they're all in the running named Gary Hart. So it turns out Donna Rice and Gary Hart really took a shine to each other, despite him being married, despite him also like not being that young. He's a lot older than her. And there's that infamous picture of her sitting on his lap with the name of his yacht on his sweatshirt. Naturally, that didn't go too well for him. Uh, Again, also, when I was seeing the pictures, I was like, he's not that hot. It's like, and he's married. I don't get it. Again, I know that a lot of people lie about the state of their marriage. Oh, we're separating, but we have kids. We have to wait, blah, blah, blah. I know that it's very easy to get duped by someone who is currently in a relationship or in a marriage, and it's not that unheard of. But again, this was also a public figure. Like, girl, you knew he was married. And once someone got a hold of that photo, obviously it was sold to the National Enquirer. So he obviously was no longer going to be in the running. And that led the way for Michael Dukakis, I believe, to be the 1998 Democratic representative. I also read something about Walter Mondale, but I was like, wasn't Walter Mondale 94? I mean, sorry, wasn't Walter Mondale 1984 when he was running against the incumbent Ronald Reagan? And he got like a very minuscule part of the voting population, basically one Minnesota and like maybe D.C. But I also know of Walter Mondale because that's what they call the old car on 90210 because they're originally from Minnesota. None of them have accents, but the only way they're able to like kind of show their Minnesota roots is to have an old beat up car named Walter Walter Mondale, which I think is funny. But she actually uh, has been able to kind of transform her tabloid days into something good. She does a lot of advocacy about keeping the internet safer for children. And as someone who grew up in the early days of the internet, it does seem like what she's doing has brought a lot of positive changes, you know, limiting certain sites that people can go on for public Wi-Fi, working with corporations to limit that kind of public Wi-Fi. Um, so, yeah, nothing I can really complain about. And she seems like she's moved on. She's married. She's, you know, raising the children of the person that she married. So she seems like she's doing pretty well. Gary Hart didn't really hear anything about him. But, yeah, definitely that that article I linked with Don Henley kind of denying and it's very interesting a very small world Don Johnson in Aspen that's also where he met Barbara Streisand then I was able to put that back to Josh Rowland we could just do like six degrees of separation with Don Johnson in Aspen (laughs) and I couldn't really find any vice tea or anything scandalous about the other guest stars everybody just kind of seemed like working character actors however Felicia is Prince's mom in Purple Rain thought that was interesting now, as we close this episode, I just want to thank you all for liking, for subscribing, for telling your friends, for leaving me wonderful reviews, for sending me really nice emails. It really does mean a lot. It really keeps me going. And thank you again for all your support. We'll be back to break down Season 3, Episode 12. We have a two-parter coming up. Spoiler alert. It doesn't look good for one of the Vice Cops. And with that, I bid you adieu. We'll see you next week here on Vice and Easy. Hey, man. Miami Vice is number one new show.